Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? State surveillance? Terrifying dystopias? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Welcome back everyone. My name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host Simon James Perry. S.J. Perry to his friends, and we're going to be talking about another one of the essays of George Orwell this week, surprise, surprise. But first of all, Simon, how are you doing? Splendid, thank you. Yourself? Not bad. It's early May 2021. The world is still in the grip of the coronavirus, but the weather's a lot nicer than it was, uh, so feeling better about that at least. And I'm working from home again. Uh, which I rather enjoy, actually. Dude, uh, well, these days, with the temperature rising and the sun coming out, I find it quite depressing sitting in my study at my, in my home, working. I want to be out and about, you know? And also, where we're living right now, we've been put into a state of emergency, which means for the upcoming week holiday we have in Japan, called Golden Week, we're not allowed to travel. Yes, it shall be more of a uh, brass week. <laughs> Polishing the brass week for me. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll leave that open to, <laughs> open to interpretation. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, Before we get started, can I just share something I found on sure, the internet? Sure. Whilst researching today's essay, I was reading this article by the LA Times Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Michael Hitzig. And he listed what he believes to be, upon apparent consultation with colleagues... Orwell's five most important essays. Right. Do you want me to list and in order from one to five, oh, or, or from five to one? You know what I think would be quite fun is if I tried to guess them. Okay. In no particular order. I think politics in the English language is in there. I. I think that... Hmm. Now, this is an American commentator, so maybe they wouldn't include things like a nice cup of tea or the moon underwater... Let's say the moon underwater is there. Nay. How about... Three strikes and you're out, by the way. How many strikes have I had so far? One. Okay. Um, how about one of his Spanish Civil War essays, like, I don't know, Spilling the Spanish Beans? Nay. Okay, last chance. Um, how about the essay we're discussing today, Marrakesh? Nay. Okay. Lay it on me. Right, from five to one, okay? Number five, a hanging. Of course, I'm yeah. such a fool. Number four, you and the... Atom bomb. Yes. Number three, in defence of... English cooking. P. G. Woodhouse. Woodhouse. Number two, reflections on... Gandhi. Yes. And number one, the one you got, politics in the English language. I'd agree with them mostly. Well, this is just him and his colleagues' opinion. It's not a definitive list. I, but I think what we could do, maybe let's wait for a few episodes down the line, but come up with our own five. Oh, yes, could do that easily. Yeah. Or what we could do is next week we'll do our own top five and then revisit it in a year's time. Mm, after we've read more. After we've read and discussed more and see how it's evolved. Sounds good. And if anyone wants to write in, please do. Please do, and give us your top fives. Orwellpod at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you. Or even your top, we haven't done so many, so your top three we've done so far. Yes, we'd love to hear which episodes have you enjoyed the most. And that gives us an indicator as what we should maybe do more of in, in the coming weeks. Exactly. We, we do this, well, we do this to please ourselves, but we also do this to please <laughs> you, the listener. Yeah. Right then, so we get jump into today's essay, which was which is my choice. Let us go to Marrakesh. Very much so. So I've chosen Marrakesh. Published in New Writing, um, Christmas nineteen thirty nine. Oh, <laughs> so that's some date. Christmas nineteen thirty nine. War had been going on for three months. Yeah. Not much travel at that point. <laughs> right then. So what I'll do is I'll give a bit of background to the essay, and then we'll jump in and discuss the main themes of it, and then. Have dinner. <laughs> Not on the podcast. So, in 1938, in March, 
Orwell was admitted to hospital with pains in his chest and he was told we think it's tuberculosis which would later be what killed him at a very premature age and he was advised to spend that winter in a warm and dry climate so he went with his wife Eileen to Marrakesh to spend the winter because it's a warm and dry climate now at the time Orwell is broke I mean properly broke and word got out about his illness and an anonymous donor donated 300 pounds in order for Orwell and his wife to spend the winter in Marrakesh in Morocco. Now this donor didn't want to be known but Orwell later found out that it was the novelist L.H. Myers and Orwell instructed that upon his death uh, proceeds from Animal Farm and 1984 were to be used to pay back L.H. Myers, which he was. Wow. In I the mean, weeks after Orwell's death, £300 was paid back. I can't imagine, oh well, £300, quite a lot at that time, not a huge amount. I imagine Animal Farm in 1984 have made a significant amount more money since then. Yeah. Um, do you know if Myers just got the proceeds up till that point, or if he was like always going to receive the royalties? Oh, no, he... No, what, sorry, maybe I didn't explain very well. So once £300 had been made in royalties, oh. that £300 was given back Paying to... Him back, exactly. ...to a very surprised Myers who never realised Orwell had found out who the anonymous donor was. So they, they went out on September the 14th, 1938, and stayed until the following March, upon which he came back to, to the UK. Uh, he wrote extensive diaries whilst he was in Morocco and today's essay is snippets from all of them put into an essay. Yes it's the fruit of those diaries. Yeah so let's bit so Lewis straight off the bat what do you think about this essay? Well Simon um, when I heard that you had chosen Marrakesh I wasn't surprised because as we've often mentioned on the podcast you're very well traveled um, much more well traveled than I am have you been to Marrakesh? No, I haven't been to Marrakesh. Have you? A couple of times. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear more about that later. Um, so I, I thought, well, Simon has chosen this because it's uh, about a, an interesting uh, city in a little-known country. Well, Morocco's not little-known, but it's not a top travel destination. But when I read the essay, as has often happened when we do this podcast, when I read the essay, I realised this is not just travel writing. In fact, in a way, it's anti-travel writing. <laughs> um, and there are well, so many... A particular form of travel mm. done by British and French people throughout the centuries. Um, and there are so many themes uh, to pick out of this, very big themes. Uh, I'm just going to list some of the themes yep. I wrote down here. Imperialism, yep. uh, anti-Semitism, and the potential, it, it hadn't really come about before the Second World War, but the potential ending of colonialism and uh, the the outlook for colonialism you know, at that point. Well, well Lewis, I think you've got that spot on that they're the three main themes that I've also identified in this essay and what we'll do is I think is discuss those three themes in, in, in no particular order but before we get on to discussing those how about the language in this essay? Well it depends what exactly you mean by the language. Do you mean the uh, the kind of problematic nature of some of the language? The, the prose. The prose. Well one thing that struck me to begin with is it's really carefully written, as you would expect of Orwell. In the first couple of paragraphs, Orwell, like I said, this is like anti-travel writing. You might expect uh, an essay about Marrakesh <laughs> to begin with a kind of general overview of the city and, oh, as I woke up in the morning, I saw the rosy sunlight glittering off the top of the minarets and that sort of thing. But no. Orwell starts off with, uh, as the corpse went past, the flies <laughs> left the restaurant table in a cloud and rushed after it, but they came back a few minutes later. And at the beginning of the essay, Orwell is describing how when a, a funeral goes past, um, uh, you, you, it makes him think of the, uh, really the struggle 
for life and the grim realities of life in Marrakesh at the time. And he uses, when he's, when he's describing what it is like for the people of Marrakesh to bury their dead, he uses a lot of really grim words, you know, rag, hack, fling, dump, hump, lumpy earth, waste, hummocky, uh, earth like a derelict building lot. It's really evocative. Yeah. Alongside thoughts on a, some common thoughts on the, or sorry, sorry, thoughts on the common toad, I think this has the most emotive language, the most emotive prose that he's used in any of his essays so far. And he's deliberately using this descriptive, you, you came up with some great examples. He's deliberately using that descriptive language to, to really get into the psyche of the reader to get his point across, like he did at the beginning of the common toad essay. Whereas that was more um, nat naturalistic language to bring out positive emotions. Like you just gave the examples of this is really digging into the deepest horrors of language to get our attention. It also struck me how Orwell's very, you, you mentioned that list at the beginning of the podcast. Um, Orwell's very famous for his very early essays like A Hanging and The Spike. Those essays were in a way much more like stories, particularly a hanging, and they used very emotive language and they told a story from beginning to end compared to later essays where he's, uh, they're much more like non-fiction and yeah. talking about an idea. This essay, Marrakesh, is kind of a blend of the two. It's storytelling, but it's also polemic. And written before he wrote poli uh, Politics in the English Language, because there's a few uh, contradictions in this essay with regards to that most famous essay, with regards to his use of adjectives and emotive language, but that's for another day. Let's go, let's go to what you were just mentioning there about the funeral procession. Now, this is my reading of it, and then I did a bit of research to see if anyone else shared my opinion. Quite a few do. Now... One of the reasons he wrote this essay was to describe how us in the West, particularly, you know, white people in the West, we have become, we became, excuse me, at that time, very normatized as to the people in the colonized lands being uncivilized in comparison to our civilized being. And although he's critiquing it, he's fallen into this trap of normatization himself. Mm because his depiction of the funeral procession and understanding of it is wrong. He, he's hinting at the barbarity of it and how the, the, the dead body was being carried in a hurry, open cast to, to the gravesite. Well, I don't know if you know much about Muslim traditions when it comes to the dead, but you have to be buried on the day you die before sundown. So you're often not afforded the luxury of how you're transported to the burial site. It can be, if all while sitting there eating his, I think he's eating dinner? Certainly sitting at a restaurant. So, yeah, so he, he might be eating dinner. So you, they might have had an hour before sundown to get that body to the burial site and get it underground. So they're not going to worry about making a, a coffin. And very few Muslims, especially in those times, were buried in coffins for that reason. And then the next thing he mentions, how they're just thrown in a hole in the ground with no gravestone, etc. Now, in the Muslim tradition, when you die, they don't often put gravestones or any markings of the grave, particularly not ornate, because the philosophy in Islam is that all dead are equal. Because when you die, you whatever happened in, the, in life, you're equal before God, equal before Allah which is why they often don't mark graves. I didn't know that. That's really yeah. interesting. So he's, he's kind of fallen into his own trap of normatizing the barbarity of, of, of these colonized lands. Undeliberately, of course. I, mean, he, I don't think he's done his research. So. Well, I think, you know, you've really hit the nail on the head because I think this is one of the problems with this essay. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad essay. I'm just saying, you yeah. know, Orwell, a human being, he... He made mistakes. He, he didn't quite understand everything he saw. Um, he was only in Marrakesh for six months. Um, I think this is one of the problems 
with this essay, which is it, it treads a really fine line between um, trying to express ideals of, you know, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, and, and trying to, Orwell trying to put himself in the mindset of the local people, the indigenous people, but at the same time, he is tainted by imperialist views, and I think he realises that, because he grew yeah. up in, a, an, in, in an imperialist country, in an environment that taught him that... Uh, at the time that taught him that white people were superior. Yeah. So I think Orwell is very much aware that he is tainted by these views and that he needs to fight against them, but yeah. I think he's still very much affected by those views. I mean, alluding to what you've just said, he, he says in the essay, no one would think of running cheap trips to the distressed areas of England, but where the human beings have brown skins, their poverty is simply not noticed. What does Morocco mean to a Frenchman? an orange grove, or a job in the government service. Now, a cynic, i.e. me, <laughs> would say, these days you've got to date that list to NGO workers. Yes. No offence, but English teachers, mm. uh, freelance journalists, bloggers. Do you see where I'm getting at with yes, that? Yes, I, I do. Do you agree? Well, yes, I do agree, um, because imperialism is, colonialism is, for all intents and purposes, over, but we are still living with the legacy of it, and that includes uh, the idea of people from uh, developed countries going to developing countries to you know, either do good or find themselves uh, or uh, mm. things like that. Um, that's something I wanted to ask you about because uh, you have you have been to Marrakesh. Yeah. Um, you've been to several places in Africa, if I'm right. I lived there for a year. Mm. Can you bring anything from your experience to reflect on Orwell's essay? Well, I think we're both guilty. I mean, you're, you're working here in Japan as an English teacher, and when I was in Africa, I was volunteering at an orphanage. Now, at the time, I was 18 years old, and I just thought I was doing good. You know, I wanted to experience a, a part of the world that was completely unknown to me and feel as though I was doing my part before I went on to university. But you know, looking back, knowing what I know now, I... I, I was playing the white saviour, wasn't I? Subconsciously. Exactly what Orwell's describing here. Saving the poor black man. And oh, that wasn't my intention to be patronising that way, but this whole system of middle-class white people going out to these poor countries to save them with their volunteering. And I spent most of my time drinking and partying. And, um, yeah. And it was, a, it was a rite of passage in a way, wasn't it? Very much the, so. The gap year, going yeah. to help people. Exactly. And, um, but it's all rooted in this colonial past of ours. Certainly. Would I, I was in Zimbabwe, and would I have gone to Zimbabwe had Britain never had an empire? Well, would, would there have been the channels for you to go to Zimbabwe if Britain had never had an empire? Would they have needed you? So <laughs> my minder... In, I was just on the outskirts of Harare, or in a village about 30 kilometers from Harare, which is the capital of Zimbabwe. And my minder was a retired colonel from the British Army who had, back in the day, been an advisor to the Rhodesian Army in the War of Independence against Mugabe's PLC, I think was the name. Anyway. And he'd stayed. Now his job was looking after all these public schoolboys who'd gone out there to save the world. And again, you know, public schoolboys going to save the world very much in the way that public schoolboys like Orwell went out to administer the empire exactly. 50 years before, or more, you know, 60, 70 years before. So whereas in Orwell's young days, the public schoolboys school are going out to administer these countries, we're now going out to lend our civilised version of um, charity. Do you think um, coronavirus might change things? Though? I don't know. I mean, a lot of these places around the world that have relied on volunteers 
will have spent the last year or two years not receiving them and maybe they've adapted. Do you think that's a good thing? Maybe it is. Well, perhaps it is. I do I do maintain that some good things will come out of all of this. Mm. Remains to be seen. As an English teacher, do you think you are the unwitting carrier of linguistic imperialism? Well, this is something that I have struggled with throughout my career as an English teacher. <laughs> career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but throughout my time as an English teacher, because, you know, being Scottish and uh, being very aware of my background and also being someone who is aware of the damage that Britain has done worldwide through history, through imperialism. Yeah. Um, I've always felt a bit troubled about my position as someone who is continuing the, you know, promoting the hegemony of English. Um, I try to uh, act with small acts of rebellion by, say, you know, reminding my students that English is a global language so they don't have to just speak American English or British English and trying to encourage my students to you know just communicate their thoughts and not care about how correct their grammar is and yet your bosses are most probably telling you to correct their grammatical and lexical errors that's quite right and I do Based on a native spa native speaker model from yes. a, from the UK, and I do have kind of petty nationalistic annoyances, like when my students tell me that I've spelt colour wrong <laughs> <laughs> because they've all learned American English. Yeah. So, one of the things Orwell famously said was that the characteristic of being a free intellectual, and by intellectual he just means anybody in, can be an intellectual if they're open-minded, is the power of facing unpleasant facts. And he's referring to imperialism, or in our case, our country's imperial past. So he's accepted this himself in writing this essay, and he has, that he himself has internalized yes, exactly. imperialist attitudes. I mean, what's his imperial past himself? You're very clued up on the history of Orwell. Well, Orwell was a public school boy in yeah. the early 1900s. As such, Although that doesn't automatically make you an imperialist. It, it's certainly Don't part worry. of I've, a... <laughs> I've made. I'm sorry, Simon. I've made enough jokes about your background. I won't do it again. It's certainly on the proce process line. I certainly, I certainly won't make any jokes about it again until we come to one of his public school essays. <laughs> but anyway, George Orwell was a public school boy in the early 1900s, so that's the height of British power and influence in the world. He was brought up to believe that Britain was the greatest country, that British people were the natural rulers of the world. And then after school, instead of going to university, he became part of the British imperial administration, and he became a policeman. Uh, and what more powerful job could you have uh, mm -hmm. on the ground as a policeman in what was then Burma, what is now And metaphorically Burma. as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it was in Burma, as an imperial policeman, uh, that Orwell finally came to question the British Empire and the way it was run and the justification for imperialism in general. Yeah, absolutely. So he has accepted his imperialist attitude that's been internalised within him and how it blinds people without them knowing it. And did you pick up on the passage in the essay where he metaphorically speaks of his blindness towards... Well, there are several passages, but the one I think you're referring to is when he's talking about the old women exactly. carrying wood. Exactly. Should I read it out? Yeah. Um, so... This is quite a long uh, passage, uh, again, using the excellent Every Man Selected Essays, page 125. Are they sponsoring you? <laughs> I wish, I wish. By the way, Every Man, if anyone is listening from Every Man, genuinely, I love Every Man, and if you could give me a job... I Are they would... not defunct? Or Are just they? this edition? This edition, I know, is out of print, yeah. but I, I, I love Every Man book. They've been around since... Or every time. woman. <laughs> every person. <laughs> or every non-binary gender person. <laughs> oh, 
Okay, Boomer. Okay, but what is strange about these people is their invisibility. For several weeks, always at about the same time of day, the file of old women had hobbled past the house with their firewood, and though they had registered themselves on my eyeballs, I cannot truly say that I had seen them. Firewood was passing. That was how I saw it. It was only that one day I happened to be walking behind them, and the curious up-and-down motion of a load of wood drew my attention to the human being underneath it. That, that really Orwellian thing to say, right. the human being underneath it. Um, then for the first time I noticed the poor old earthen-coloured bodies, bodies reduced to bones and leathery skin, bent double under the crushing weight. Yet I suppose I had not been five minutes on Moroccan soil, before I noticed the overloading of the donkeys and was infuriated by it. I think we'll get on to the animal cruelty yeah, later. Yeah. But, uh, but it's beautiful writing, that, isn't Beautiful it? writing. And I think you're quite right that he's very good in showing you how, as a Western European man uh, brought up the way he was, he has internalised yeah. the blindness towards the plight and the exploitation of native peoples. And he's so subtle in expressing this, that sometimes I thought, yeah, I mentioned at the beginning that I thought some of the language was problematic. I think if you were reading this in a non-nuanced way, you would see some of what he wrote as it being insensitive. But I, what, what I think Orwell is trying to show is that if you are a European at that time, brought up the way he was, then you would think that way as a matter of course, because that is the propaganda you were brought up with. And if, if I may open myself up here, there's one part where he says, um, when you see how the people live and still how more easily they die, it is always difficult to believe that you are walking among human beings. All colonial empires in reality founded upon that fact. And that took me back to my many travels to the third world. And as opposed to Marrakesh, what came to me immediately was when I was in India. So I spent nearly nine months in India doing a trip by bicycle. And the thing about the beauty of traveling by bike is that you're very seldom in, sorry to be um, hipster here, but you're very seldom in uh, touristy areas and you're having, by very nature, cycling from Delhi, Delhi to Mumbai you're spending 99% of your time in the real parts of the country. And it took me back to how there were so many people, so, mo so much poverty, I remember becoming immune to it, mm. immune to the suffering. I almost dehumanised the people around me. Yes, and in a way that also dehumanises you, because it may yep. be being... Um, being indifferent to the suffering of others is a very inhuman thing. Yeah. So I think one of the points Orwell's trying to make in this essay, that not only does colonialism dehumanise the indigenous people, it dehumanises the colonialists Absolutely. as well. And I did that trip with a good friend of mine, Shrik, who's British, but his ancestry is from India. And I opened up to him about halfway through the trip. I said, Shrik, I, I just feel like I'm... My attitude, I'm dehumanising because... You're often the centre of attention being a tall white guy on a bicycle in India. And I, at the beginning, I was very polite with absolutely everybody I met. But by four months, I, I felt within myself I was becoming, a, for want of a better word, asshole. And I couldn't help it. It was, And I wonder how much of that was the subconsciousness of me coming from England, a wealthy country, having been to a public school. And whether there was a subconscious, internalised attitude within me. I didn't openly think this, but was I subconsciously seeing these people as beneath me, below me, and not worthy of my attention? Do you know the American writer David Sedaris? No. You might like him. Um, he's a writer I really enjoy, and he writes a lot of stories and essays, and Recently, I was listening to an essay uh, that he read on Radio 4 about um, his trips to Eastern Europe. And um, he mentioned in his essay that, you know, of course, there is a, such a thing as white privilege. 
but there are also other kinds of privilege. There's white privilege, there's uh, European, Western privilege, American privilege, male privilege. Um, and I think that it's undeniable that those of us who have grown up in countries where there is a certain amount of privilege, uh, when we go to countries which are very much on another, where the suffering is very much on another scale, um, we might be rather immune to it or, yeah. or to recognizing it because we, we've grown up so far removed from that. And even though we are saying pretty negative things here, credit to us for opening up about this and recognizing it. You have to recognize something to then theorize it and understand it and exactly. improve it. Yes, exactly. So let's go on to the next point that you mentioned earlier, that of anti-Semitism. What, what did you pick up about that in the essay? Well, it's quite a small section in the essay, very concentrated. Um, we think of the Middle East these days as being quite homogeneously Islamic. But of course, for hundreds of years, uh, Middle Eastern countries were actually quite diverse. They, they had a Muslim majority, and a large numbers of Jews and also Christians, uh, for example, in Egypt, the Coptic Christians. And of course, that's changed a lot since the foundation of Israel. But Orwell mentions the Jewish ghettos in Marrakesh. But can I just interrupt you there? Do you know what the Jewish population of Marrakesh was when he wrote this essay? I think he mentions it, doesn't he? About 200,000? Uh... Um, well, since he wrote that, they, in Marrakesh... It was 25,000. Mm. Do you know what it is now in 2021? It's about 5,000 or something. 128. Oh. And you, you mentioned it. The reason was because after the Second World War, the creation of Israel, everybody, they all migrated there. And Arab nationalism as well. Many, yes. The two nationalisms, really. Make of that what you will, everyone. The effect of nationalism on cultural diversity. But um, what I found quite poignant about this section was when Orwell wrote, whichever way you look, you see nothing but Jews. As a matter of fact, there are 13,000 of them all living in the space of a few acres. A good job Hitler isn't here. Now, first of all, I found that quite striking because some people say, oh, before the war, you know, people didn't expect what Hitler was going to do. Of course they did. They knew what he was going to do. Um, perhaps perhaps not to the extent of the extermination of six million yes, people. Yes, quite right. But, but I, I think you could see severe yeah. atrocities coming in 1939. Kristallnacht was widely reported around Europe. But what I found even more poignant about that was that within a matter of a couple of years... Uh, Marrakesh would be under the control of the collaborationist Vichy regime, uh, collaborating with Nazi Germany, and the Jews of Morocco would very much be under threat. Yeah. But I don't know if you looked into this, Simon. I was, I was really worried when I read this part of the essay, and I thought, oh no, what happened next? But I found out that during the war, apparently the king of Morocco, the Islamic, or sorry, rather the Muslim king of Morocco, uh, protected yeah. his Jewish subjects. He refused to allow the Vichy government to deport them to Europe, and as such is still seen as a hero amongst the Moroccan Jews and their descendants. All 128 of them. <laughs> and the ones in Israel. And the By ones the way, in Israel. these days... Uh, Moroccan Jews and their descendants make up 15% of the population of Israel. Is that so? Yes, quite a large segment. Wow, that's amazing. We always associate is Israel's population with Europe, don't we? But 15% is really high. Um, that's really interesting. Another thing I want to mention here is, and I hope this comes across how I intended to, but in 1938, before the horrors of the Second World War's um, Holocaust, became known, anti-Semitism wasn't seen how it is today. Today it's rightly seen as, a, as all forms of racism, mm. as, foul. Uh, as absolutely foul. 
But anti-Semitism throughout history, and particularly in imperial countries, has often been a form of prejudice that you could get away with. Do you know what I mean? Like we would call it today barroom banter and nothing else. And so in 1938, even in England, you wouldn't have been called up for anti-Semitism. No, and there were, you know, people made Jewish jokes. Yeah. And uh, remember in, when we were talking about the Donald McGill essay, Orwell was saying that Jewish jokes were quite common until the war when they started to kind of leave a nasty taste in the mouth. Mm. Um, you're right here because... So, so his dry mockery of anti-Semitism in this essay, it shows you the foreseeing of the man and how he can see how prejudice is prejudice. Exactly. It shouldn't be ranked. Well, you mentioned how um, it was at that time considered acceptable by many people in society. Orwell mentions how, and I'm quoting here, you hear the usual dark rumours about the Jews, not only from the Arabs, but from the poorer Europeans. And then he imagines speaking to a poorer Frenchman in Algeria. Yes, mon vieux, <laughs> they took my job away from me and gave it to a Jew, the Jews. They're the real rulers of this country, etc., etc. Um, and, and you know, they've got all the money. Yes. They control the banks, finance, everything. I'm, I'm a bit nervous about this part because people can edit us. <laughs> um, but um, uh, what really struck me from what you said and com comparing it to what Orwell's written here, it's, you know, what's the argument? Coming over here, taking our jobs, that yeah. kind of thing. Well, these are all very typical stereotypes, aren't they, of the Jewish people? And, and Orwell hypothetically replies, but, I said, isn't it a fact that the average Jew in Marrakesh, is a labourer working for about a penny an hour. Ah, that's only for show. They're all money lenders, really. They're cunning, the Jews. Faking poverty, living in squalor to hide money. Now work that one out. This is only just after Orwell's described the extreme poverty in the Jewish yeah. ghettos in Marrakesh. Do you have any passages there where he describes they're working in tiny little booths in this in the middle of the medina with its narrow six foot wide streets yes well he says it gives you a good idea what the medieval ghettos were probably like um so many of the streets are a good quoting orwell here page 122 many of the streets are a good deal less than six feet wide the houses are completely windowless and sore-eyed children cluster everywhere in unbelievable numbers like clouds of flies. Down on the centre of the street there is generally running a little river of urine. I don't think these people are controlling the world's finance yeah. markets. <laughs> but it's the same when you go to Fez. It's the same when you go to the old Jewish quarter in Cordoba and Granada and other cities of Spain which were created by the, what do they call them, Moros. The Moors? Moro, the Moors, but mm. is that a derogatory word these days? Well, I don't know. It might be. The, the since, Islamic since rulers of the, the yeah. Islamic rulers of Islamic Spain. Islamic rulers of Spain, and they're always tiny, cramped, with little white, little which is lovely these days for tourism. But it would have been horrible to live in in those days. And the reason being is, in these cities, especially those run by Christians or Islamic rulers, Jews were given tiny neighbourhoods with strict rules about where they could live. Oh, yes. So they had to pile 25,000 people into what would normally be land for 5,000 people, hence the nature of the buildings. Well, as you say, look at, look at Marrakesh, look at Cordoba, look at uh, places in Russia... Uh, and look at the East End in London as well, yeah. where, which had a big Jewish population until the 50s. Have you travelled much around Andalusia in Spain? I've never been to Spain. Well, when you do, it's fascinating, the Spanish cities with the... Um, the oh, I can't think of a better word. Let's just say the Arabic past, and they all have Jewish quarters, and then you have the Christian parts, which were built a bit later. But Marrakesh is interesting for that, because you have the Medina, and the area there, which is the old area, then 
around it you have the French colonial area, which is mostly early 20th century to Art Deco architecture. And then beyond that, you have the modern buildings. It's really fascinating how you go the, from the outside in, going through these different... It's like a layer of rock. You can tell how old it is by how closer you get to the centre. Makes me think very much of what my mum would tell me about her time in Singapore when, uh, you know, you would see all the remnants of the... Uh, of course, when my mum was in Singapore, there were still a lot of old buildings. Now, good mm. luck finding a building over 10 years old in Singapore. But Raffles um, Hotel. Raffles Hotel, uh, the, the shop houses, which my mum always really liked. Um, and uh, when my mum was young, there were still some of the old kind of Malay, Kampong type houses as well. Oh, wow. Amazing. Well, let's move on to the last point. What was the last point you wanted to discuss, the themes that you picked up on? Well... It's looking to the future, at least as Orwell saw it in 1939, and it's, for want of a better word, the winds of change yeah. that are starting to blow. Shall, shall I read the passage from the essay, which I, I imagine we both picked up on? And for me, this is the most poignant passage of the whole essay. And he says, There is one thought which every white man, and in this connection it doesn't matter to peace if he calls himself a socialist, thinks when he sees a black army marching past. How much longer can we go on kidding these people? How long before they turn their guns in the other direction? How powerful is that? Very powerful. Because it's Orwell seeing ahead 20 years yeah. to, the, to the colonial rebellions that will end colonialism in Africa. So, so what's happened that makes him write this passage? Well, he's just been, of course, you know, I don't think we've mentioned Marrakesh was a French colony, and he's just watched some Senegalese troops, Senegal, another French colony at the time, he's just watched some Senegalese troops in the French army march past in their ill-fitting uniforms, and he was surprised how one soldier looked at him with reverence because he was a white man, and he was thinking, it's because this young man has been brainwashed to think that I am superior to him but how long will this last how long will these men who we have trained up think of us as superior how long until they realize that our race is exploiting their race well eric i can tell you about 20 years <laughs> from when you wrote that you won't live to see it but 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 in the years in the decade after your death is when they realized do you remember how i told you in a previous podcast how Franz Fanon, the, the, the famous post-colonialist, was inspired by Orwell. It was this essay. Was it? Yeah. And like Franz Fanon was a Martinique, a, another French colony, but he fought in the Algerian War of Independence and based a lot of his writings on North Africa, including Morocco, in his uh, seminal book, The Wretched of the Earth. Go read that if you haven't. Well, as we said, Orwell, really precursor to post-colonialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've read a lot of post-colonialism. I never read of any references to him. Yeah, there should be. So, like, before we finish, I want to ask you something. Who's your favourite? I'm not going to say writer, because in this day and age, I think we have to be multimodal, multimodal, and include documentaries, movies, whatnot, but who's your favourite travel documenter? Oh, that's a difficult question, Simon. Um, I'm afraid I have to give a bit of a conservative answer. Have you... Nothing wrong with that. Don't be a hipster. <laughs> have you ever heard of a writer called Patrick Lee Fermer? No. Simon, you would love him. You would absolutely love him. Uh, he... His first major... His initials are PLF. PLF, yes. Yeah. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of post-colonialism. Um, <laughs> he was a young man in the 30s, and he came from, you know... A fairly... 30s ain't young. Well, yes. You're he... about to find that out. <laughs> <laughs> is it this year? It is this yeah, year. Okay. A few months' time. Um, he was a young man in the 1930s, and he went, he decided one day, you know, he, he hadn't gotten into university, it was 1935, he hadn't gotten into university, and he decided, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk from the Hook of Holland 
to Constantinople as was. And he, he, he did it. He walked all the way. It took well, him you've told me about this two before years. Pub, yeah. um, and uh, he wrote a couple of books about it, like 20, 30 years after the fact. He also lived in Greece for a very long time, wrote a lot of travel books about Greece. I do think that, I, as I say, it's a bit of a conservative choice because he was kind of the opposite of Orwell. He was not very... He liked tradition, and he, he always wrote about the traditional life of the countries he went through in a very nostalgic way, more like a kind of ethnologist or anthropologist. But he, just for his sheer sense of adventure and the unique nature of his writing, Patrick Lee Fermer, read him. Really, Simon, you really need to read him. How about documental, visual? Who's your favourite travel documentary? Difficult question again. Let, let's hear yours. You're, you're much more familiar with that. Um, can I give you two? Go ahead. And oh, I'll give you three. Okay, one. Have you heard of Anthony Bourdain? Oh, the chef. Yeah, I really like his... God rest his soul. God rest his soul, yeah. Parts unknown. He was, he was a cool guy and he just went to various cities in the world, countries in the world, eating his way through the country and like through that exploring other parts of the culture and... I really liked his angle on it. Yeah. Can I just say, sorry, you've you've reminded me. Of course, of course, Michael Palin. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be a hipster. Michael Palin's in that. Really. The uh, for for his favorite are... his favorite series, or your um, favorite series of his. My favorite series. I'm going to go for something a bit unusual. Actually, I'm going to go for one of his later series about. I think it was called Michael Palin's New Europe. When oh. he was travelling through, it was just after a lot of the former Warsaw Pact countries had joined the EU. So he was going through like Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic <laughs> in the days when Britain was still in the EU and we had a bright future ahead of us. Yeah. I, I'm going to say, two, can I give you two? Mm. Um, Around the World in 80 Days. I just thought that was very exciting and I'd watched it in retrospect, but had I watched that at the time and... Yeah, I thought that was great. And full circle, he goes around the the Pacific Rim, especially now that we live in Japan and his experiences in Japan are thought were great. And I think he's at his humorous best in that one. I still remember how uh, in Around the World in 80 Days he was trying to learn that Russian song. Do you remember? <laughs> Polushka Polly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my Russian relatives are listening, going, do you remember that scene where he's in the grave in, in St. Petersburg? No, I don't. In the graveyard, like, going, mm. saying, look at who's buried here, and he's looking at the all the composers, yeah. composers and writers. From that, I went on to go and check out who these people were and grew a really big love for Russian uh, composers and writers. Michael Palin, out of all of the Pythons, has had, you know, if I was one of the Pythons, I would want to be Michael Palin. He's had, like, the best post-Python career out of any of them, I think. Best, yeah. Perhaps not most successful. That would have to be Cleese, wouldn't it? Or, or Terry Gilliam. True. Do some amazing movies. Amazing movies, but, you know, not... Oh, Terry Jones. I love his little horrible histories. and Again, God bless his soul. In fact, in fact the only one who I... Maybe Eric Idle didn't really... Wrote some good songs, mm. and it certainly made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Graham Chapman, what did, he did um, that pirate movie, didn't he? You know what you could say about Graham Chapman is that he was out. He was a, a gay personality at a time when it was difficult to be like that. So he obviously must have inspired a lot of people. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. And I can't think of any more. Um, Alan Wicker. Oh, Alan Wicker, yes. I remember in the 80s. Again, like, Python, welcome to Wicker Island. <laughs> I wonder if that's where Palin got his own. Probably. So think about Palin, if I may go back to that. He's not a natural traveller. He was like struggling to find his way after the Pythons and a fish called Wanda. And a producer from the BBC came up to him and said, listen, we've asked a few other people to do this series um, around the world. Would you be up for it? And he was like, I don't know. I don't really travel much. And I'll give it a go. And so he developed his love for travel 
through that. It wasn't that he had a love for travel and pitched it to some producers. It was vice versa. I'm sorry, could I mention just one more that had a big well, course, impact yeah. on me? Have you heard of a guy called Tim Grundy? There was a series when I was growing up in the 90s called Two's Country. Um, I used to come home from primary school and me and mum and dad would sit down in front of Two's Country on the TV. And it was this guy called Tim Grundy and the cameraman who was al always just known as the I. And you, ne you never heard the cameraman's name. You only He would just do like gestures with his hand in front of the camera, like thumbs up or, you know, or like, oh, I don't know, you know, waving his hand. But what Tim Grundy did was he went to lots of obscure places, first of all in the British Isles and then throughout Europe and then gradually throughout the world. And... That made a big impression on me because he would just go to oh this week I uh, this week I am mostly I am uh, mostly travelling to to uh, the uh, small towns of Wiltshire and you know it might not sound gripping but it gave me a real love of the British countryside and you would see him like trudging through this week I am following the route of the Thames from its from its the beginnings in a spring in the Oxfordshire hills to <laughs> to its estuary uh, and I love that kind of thing. I did two things relatively similar. I went interrailing once in my younger years and I was in Venice and I'd met this Dutch guy at a backpackers hostel and we said let's travel to the next place together and we decided the next morning to go to the train station over across the lagoon from Venice and Watch whatever place was at the top of the notice board was where we were going. And it was Ljubljana and Slovenia, <laughs> which I didn't even know existed at the time. So we just got on the next train to Ljubljana. The next one was I was at my parents' uh, house in the north of France in Brittany. And I just decided I was going to go hiking. Had some time on my hands before I had to go back to work. I mean, a lot of time. I had a contract starting in about three months. And I started walking and I didn't really know where I was going. I just know I wanted to go and visit some old World War II and World War I battle sites. So from Brittany, I just walked and walked. And when I finally decided to call it quits, I was in Brussels. So everyone, that was Marrakesh, Simon's choice for this week. And I'm very glad you chose that one, Simon. It, I enjoyed that. It brought up some very interesting and unexpected avenues. Well, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Again, as I said before, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Orwellpod at gmail.com. Please write to us. Uh, we're also on Instagram. We're, all, we're on all the major podcast apps, aren't we, Simon? Yes, Spotify, I, iTunes, Google Pods. And the rest. And the rest, no doubt. All right. Thanks, everyone. You know what we always say, don't you, Simon? Yeah, go on, sir. Orwell with